When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukalu. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, our old friend Jana Matthews is back. She was one of my very first guests on this program. Jana is professor of medieval literature at Rollins College and the author of a new book about fraternities and sororities called The Benefits of Friends. Make sure you check that out. Then after that, I include an extended conversation with medieval historian Ian McInnes. Ian and I talk about Clash of Kings and House of the Dragon. Just a note, after the season concludes, Aaron will be joining me to do listener feedback. Feel free to send that to book at baldmove.com if you have any questions for me or Bosmang Aaron. All right, without further ado, here is Professor Jenna Matthews. Jana, do you have any especially interesting New Year's resolutions? You know, I would to get my health check this morning, just my annual physical, because mm-hmm. I tried to do it at the beginning of the year. And they asked me if I exercise, and I just said, like, aspirationally. And <laughs> That's a great answer for that. So I feel like it's my It's part of my was, hopes and dreams. Right. <laughs> sort of tilted her head, and she's like, well, you might want to you know, translate into reality. And I think, well, well, this is probably right. I kind of feel the same way whenever I go to the dentist. It's like, <laughs> like, how often do you floss? And I I almost feel like just saying, let's just make an agreement. Let's never talk about flossing again. I know that right. I should, and you know that you should tell me to. <laughs> but this is just the same game over and over and over again. I know, I know. <laughs> it's hard. Hey, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question that, I've been thinking a lot about this week, and that is, who do you think gets more vitriol from the fandom? Do you think it's Ned or Cat? Because I used to say Ned, and now I think, I hear a lot of Catelyn derision as well. I would actually argue that Catelyn does too, and part of that just might be because she's a woman, and we're you know, historically and sort of even socially less generous to women than men. But, you know, she's also in the series for much longer than Ned. Um, And, you know, she, she's a mama bear. And um, sometimes the things that she says and she, that she does might serve her or her children's interests at the, at the expense of of quite a range of other people. Right. Sometimes that, that, you know, we've got it. You have to acknowledge that. So I was talking with my friend Heather the other day, and she was saying that in rereading this chapter, she just feels like Catelyn almost always makes questionable choices. Mm. Like she just keeps making the wrong choice over and over and over again. And I wonder if some of that can be explained because her goals are different than other people's goals. Like in this chapter... Mm -hmm. Rob's thinking, how do I win this war? And Catelyn's thinking, how does how do how do I get my son to win this war? But in addition to that, she's also thinking, and how do I get my daughters back alive? And she might prioritize the the daughters over the war. So it could just be her priorities are different, and she, she so maybe she is viewed differently. I think her yeah, I think her priorities are viewed differently, and therefore they're viewed selfishly. And I, I, and I think that Rob here is, you know, the opening scene has some sort of like fingering and playing around with the crown and, you know, Catelyn's eyes are kind of fixated on that. And she's, Uh you could almost like see her irritation as he kind of plays around with it and tries to adjust it. And there's some sort of metaphor for that too, but it's, you know, when he puts on the crown, he not, he is not thinking about 
he's thinking about the body politic and that surely involves his family, but it's much more broad than that. Where Catelyn, you know, as a, as a woman and as the matriarch of the family is her goal and only goal as she's been raised to think and aspire to is to have all of her children well-placed either in a place of kingship or mm-hmm. in a place of, of rulership or position to give birth to a potential ruler. Right. And, um, and so, you know, she's she's both she's both responding as a mother but also um as somebody who is trying to gain power from and retain power from a different angle which is protecting the wounds um, of her daughters yeah and you know in the hands of joffrey you know she knows it's just a matter of time until sansa is you know and her children unsafe um mm-hmm. and that and that and her line are unsafe in that that, that kingdom i also think that there's something about her being sort of more aware of Southern politics than a lot of mm. Rob's advisors. Mm-hmm. You know, like great John Umber, he's kind of like all masculinity all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then Edmure's a little bit more like, uh, I guess he's he's a creature of the South too, but I, I don't feel like he's the sharpest knife in the drawer. Like for some reason, Brendan, her brother, Brendan Blackfish... I feel like he's probably the the person that ought to be in Rob's ear, but really he's on the margins. And so Kat gets the benefit of his wisdom. The conversation between those two, Brendan and Catelyn, to me is much more interesting than the conversation between anyone else in this in this uh, story. But let's get to that in a bit I, I I wanted to ask you about the crown I wanted uh, uh Rob's crown in particular yeah I had never paid attention to the details of that before it, I think it serves a couple purposes in in the story I think it, it's a metaphor right <laughs> it's sure it's it's fitting uncomfortably on this boy's head I think that's the first thing and number two I think it, it's almost like a relic it's like there was a crown for the kings of winter and it it got handed over a long time ago, and so they're kind of trying to replicate what they think it looked like. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I just love that opening scene. I think that Martin is really sort of the master in every one of these chapters of using those first couple of paragraphs to guide us and uh, identify sort of the symbolic object or or thing that he wants us to sort of use as a metaphor for the rest of that, of the conversations that are to follow. Mm. And so he obviously situates us to look really intensely and closely at, at the manufacture and structure and composition of this crown. And right, I mean, the, as you pointed out, it, it, it sits really uneasily. It's, it's too big for him. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't fit right. It's kind of like wearing a ring that's too loose and you can never kind of get it, you know, until you grow into it, until your body expands, uh, isn't going to quite fit neatly. And so he's tinkering with it. He's used to the weight of it on his shoulders. And that's a metaphor in itself, like mm-hmm. the weight of monarchy um that's on him i i couldn't you know you're, you're talking about a sort of as a relic and i think the relationship between relic and replica are really interesting, oh, interesting. here because yeah. right because it is it is a replica of a relic right um and anytime you make a, a replica it always in some senses is a better version than the original because it's new <laughs> sure. um sure. you know it better is better technology yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it but it also it's a it's a forgery and it's a fake. Uh-huh. And so one of the things I think it, that's being asked here is that it's not the original crown that's been passed down. It's sort of the imagined version of what we think that that thing looked like from memory or from historical legend, and it's sitting on a, on this individual's head. And, and you think, well, like it's not going to go well if you have. Um, somebody who's wearing a fake crown yeah (laughs) Um, because essentially that's what's happening uh and so it foreshadows i think infinitely not only because it doesn't fit him well but because it's it's not real well that's interesting from cat's perspective the smith who made the crown did a really good job like Mm -hmm. like the smith who did like the crown looks the part and the thing that looks off is the person wearing the crown. It's like, mm-hmm. the, like the person beneath the crown, from Kat's perspective, 15-year-old boy, his voice isn't quite there yet. Like he's not quite yeah. finished with puberty yet. He's intimidating not because he's got this sword, but because he's got this wolf. 
you know, the, the sword is positioned perfectly. The wolf is intimidating. Everyone else around the king looks perfect. It's the king himself that's the problem, right? Right. So I that's from, that's cat's perspective. Now you could look at that and think, well, that's how this is the problem, mother between mothers and sons. There's a sense in which you're always kind of gonna see the little boy, uh, no matter how big he gets. But I do think that she has the right of it. I I think that Rob is going to be easily influenced. Uh, you know, people like great John Umber are, are going to have some kind of impact on him and he might have a little bit of false confidence because he has been so successful, successful so fast. Right. And, you know, this is a, this is a sort a story in a series of boy Kings. And so we've got him to compare it with Joffrey and Joffrey wears his crown with fear. Um, and even though he is young, when he, when he ascends the throne, um, it's a very, very different kind of way of occupying that space. I, if I could bring us to back into parallel to history, and again, we want to be really careful that we're not mapping things on because this is, you know, Game of Thrones is an amalgam of lots of different parts and pieces from history right. all over the place. But, but I think it's as I was rereading this chapter, I was really drawn um, back to the later Middle Ages and specifically the War of the Roses, which is, uh, you know, obviously Martin's very favorite. Uh, period in medieval history to kind of like latch on to. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me also of kind of like the real historical precedent behind the figure of Rob. And, and many people have made the comparison and link between Rob and between um, Edward the fourth of York, who was similarly uh, the eldest son of a powerful Lord who was killed by his enemies and served as that death served as an impetus for the civil war. Hmm. And when Edward, when Edward the fourth ascends the throne, the reason why he does that, he crowns himself um, the, the the king, and his dad, right, Richard, was the hand of the king equivalent, right? He's the hand okay. of the king, and the reason why he got that position of power is because he actually captured the king in battle, and instead of usurping the king, he he made a deal with him and said. I'm going to be your hand, essentially. It's sort of the nice way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then instead of your children ascending the throne, mine are. Oh. And what ended up, so then what ended up happening is that that is where Edward the ascended the throne. And it was a, so he was not of the sort of correct bloodline to ascend. Um, he did so under really contentious circumstances and wore that crown very, very uneasily. Hmm. And so I think we, we've got a little bit of, if you're drawing the historical parallels there, you've got Rob, who's in a similar position, whose dad has been killed, right? They sort of initiated this kind of precursor to a civil war, right? He, they've, they've essentially seceded from the union, if you want to put it in contemporary American terms, um, and said, we're on our own. We're not going to recognize you anymore. Uh, and that in and of itself is is a, a place of tremendous um, unease. And both of them were about the same age. So they're yeah. both late teens. Yeah, there are a number of parallels there for sure. And I, I was going to ask you a little bit about sort of historical hostage taking but let me read the um let me read my synopsis of the chapter and we can jump back into that topic king rob holds court as sir cleos is brought to kneel before him rob instructs cleos to deliver terms of peace to his cousin cersei lannister notably Rob omits any return of Jamie Lannister in his terms of peace, but demands the return of his sisters. In Catelyn's view, a sweeter offer might have been more wise, and she tells this to Rob once he has removed his crown. They, along with Edmure, argue over the terms offered. Then she visits her father, who was asleep and nearing death. She discusses Tywin's doings and objectives with the Blackfish, in response, Cat decides to appeal to King Renly and offer him homage. So, Jana Matthews, I asked you to uh, bring an observation and or a question to the table. What do you want to talk about? So any of those things sound really great. I would love, I'd love to talk a little bit more about hostage taking. Yeah. Particularly like the terms that that Rob sets out in this sort of elaborate letter. A huge portion of this chapter is dedicated to him kind of cataloging yep. the terms that he wants back. And I think we should talk about, you know, 
what those terms are and why they're interesting and fun. Yeah, let's do that. So the terms that I can remember that are notable to me are the conditions by which the North, the North will be set free, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you're going to return any hostages that you have. You're mm-hmm. going to not ask any taxation or any service of any of my subjects. Uh, here are the lands that are going to delineate, you know, the north from the south. And that's the, really the lion's share of the conversation. And then, of course, kind of like snuck in there, <laughs> like almost like as an afterthought, like, oh, and by the way, uh, you know, Sir Jamie's going to be held in hostage right. to make sure that Tywin is, you know, uh, has good behavior or something like that. Um, and from Kat's perspective, there's no way Cersei's going to agree to this. Yeah, there's no way. And, and I think the other kind of key terms here is that a, a lot of the terms that he asked for, he it, it's there's sure he wants the North to be independent. Um, and that's part of it. But a lot of the specifics are specific to his particular family. And so right. he wants his sisters. He wants his father's bones returned to him. Right. That's a big one. He right? want, yes. He wants his father's sword returned to him. And then, you know, and then, then it kind of goes on to this thing. So there's a lot of like personal requests here, which is interesting because, you know, a lot of that is, um, you know, it's Catelyn's kind of intervention in, into these things. A lot's about honor um, and, and sort of the preservation of, rep, you know, of reputation and for, you know, and processes and memorials that need to have happen. But, uh, you know, it's this fascinating combination of like personal requests that are things that are important to me and my person and my family, and then those that are important to the kingdom. Right. Don't you think that the, like, one is almost an extension of the other? Like, for instance, like, from this point of view, the Stark fam, the, the North entire is almost an extension of the Stark family in terms of the history of it. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like that one it's almost like the well-being of the north is an extension of the well-being of the the stark lineage or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you see in that is sort of this connection between you know between the the land, the people, everyone's intermarried, everyone is um you know part of this like sort of broader community and essentially right they just want they want independence. Mm-hmm. Um but they, but independence means complete and full separation from all of their kind of relatives who are stuck in the south mm-hmm. they want they want they want back in the north and i think that if you were going to fault rob the terms of this agreement i think that rob's failure rob has seen that his family is the most important in the north mm-hmm. what he's failed to see is that jamie lannister is tywin's heir yeah so i think that there's almost a failure to realize that Family is going to be as important to Tywin as family has been in these terms to Rob. I think you're absolutely right. And what you see here is both the eager, the ego on display, but also the vulnerability. So the the three first three terms that are outlined were wanting the siblings back, the bones and the sword uh-huh. um, are really reflective of like what they're really worth fighting for. Those are the things that they that they see are non-negotiable. Um, and again, if we were, if this was sort of a, a real argument, if we were sitting down and we're providing legal counsel to rogue human beings, we might say like, you need to pick your priorities and the priorities need to be for the, you know, that, that Joffrey and the queen region should renounce all claims and dominions of the North. Um, and, and that really should be kind of the point of negotiations of what's happening there. So I think that fundamental to a, their disagreement is that Rob is of the mind that, Jamie is such a valuable hostage that there's no question that a straight up trade with Jamie and his two sisters would be a equal trade. Mm-hmm. And I think Kat would be happy to make that trade. So I'm I'm wondering historically speaking is there a gendered value to hostage taking? Um, absolutely, because first of all, women were taken hostage as well. When you think about, um, you know, Queen Elizabeth routinely, I mean, she held her sister hostage mm. uh, for long periods of time. But the difference is, is that sister was a, uh, he was an heir to the throne. And so 
um, in both in the Middle Ages and even sort of the eras that existed before and after, it's it's not that women it was uncommon for women to be held hostage, but the terms and stakes of them, like there were very few cases when it was really when they really had anything to offer, um, and so most often they were men, and hostages were routinely held, um, and it it wasn't that they were kept in usually kept imprisoned, especially high ranking. Um, hostages in really horrible conditions often then they were treated quite well they were educated mm. they were uh they were they were given their own kind of suit, suit of apartments and that's why i think rob and catlin talk about their treatment of jamie and say well he's you know he's you need to let him they tell the messenger you need to let cersei know uh, that this is the condition upon which jamie's being treated he's been given fresh straw good food mm -hmm. He's very comfortable. There's nothing we're, treat, we're, we're treating him humanely with the idea that, and that's sort of a, a, a practice of good militaristic um, strategy because you know that when your hostages or your siblings or family members are going to be held captive, you want them to be treated the same way. So it's sort of a gentleman's agreement. Um, but so hostages were a, a sort of standard operating procedure for how you negotiated in war. Um, but right, you, to answer your specific question, there was absolutely sort of a gendered component to it. And your value uh, was always determined on how close you were to the throne mm. and, and sort of seats of power. And because women were rarely close to the close to the seats of power, mm. um, you know, in terms of in terms of inheritance, they were inherently kind of viewed as less valuable hostages with a few rare exceptions. Right. And you, you mentioned something there that I found interesting. So you, you know, you treat these, I guess, elite hostages well, because you're hoping that they will treat your hostages well, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they're talking about how well Jamie's being treated. Um, I mean, who knows if that's just rhetoric, but I think that they probably are treating him fairly well. Look at the way Sansa's being treated, you know? Basically, yeah. she's being punished. Every single time Rob does something that jo that angers Joffrey, he has someone beat Sansa. So you kind of see that this is not playing out the way that, they, that they're hoping it plays out, right? Right. I think that... So in, in what Rob does with making these conditions is he's identifying... Sansa as being um, a valued commodity and to the Stark family. And so the Lannisters very smartly are hitting them where it hurts. If he had not mentioned them, then she probably would have been treated better because yeah. they know that she's, you know, not valued and nobody cares uh -huh. if they get her back or not. And so um, absolutely, I think that what you see is, and, and ultimately as, as we think about how the series is gonna unfold or this, even this book, uh, part of the, part of playing dirty is what the Lannisters are constantly accused of. And this is another example with their playing dirty. The sort of um, courtly rules are yeah. in the society that you don't abuse or mistreat your royal um, hostages and they are. right. I was reading this. I couldn't help but think about the Brittany Griner prisoner swap. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this is a very ancient, it's very ancient practice, but we're still doing it today. Yeah. And I couldn't help but think like part of the value for Brittany Griner is her celebrity, right? So mm -hmm. she's 100%. she is uh, she's more a, a more prominent name, and she has political capital because of that. And I'm wondering if that's kind of part of Jamie's value, too. It's like kind of remove the gender part of it that doesn't necessarily map one to one. But Jamie's the Kingslayer. He's the eldest son of Tywin. He's a celebrity. Um, it, so he does have proximity to the throne. Yes. But that's brought him a certain notoriety. And that's part of his value. And I think that that kind of it kind of pumps up. Rob's reputation to have taken the Kingslayer. Absolutely. And that's exactly what happened during the War of the Roses. When you think about uh, Richard, the Duke of York, when he captured King Henry VI and held him, you know, essentially held him hostage, arranged this sort of like weird deal where, you know, the, the, the power was going to change. But, you know, having your hands on the king or the or, or your yeah. or, or possession over control over somebody who a, a celebrity of any kind uh -huh. um, in this sense, 
the Starks, their military prowess and their power is based on the fact that they have this, that they've captured this big player hmm. in their kind of still sort of nascent stage of their, their power building here. So they're trying to break away and kind of do, do make, make a big, big change or bid for power. They need Jamie. They're not ready to let him go. Hmm. Hmm. Right. Um, but I think to your, you know, circle back to your initial point when that, the that the mistakes of making of sending this messenger and making these terms um, are are great and numerous and Catelyn if she is the one who was sort of driving the impetus for um, the inclusion of the of the demands for her children back uh, really are causing are, are short sighted and cause and, and opening up a vulnerability hmm. to the Stark family that that maybe or that would not have been there if um, they had done that. Interesting. We we have three more interpretations of the comet in this chapter. Yeah. Uh, we, we, they keep rolling in. Um, it, it's a flag of vengeance uh, sent by the old gods. So great, John mm-hmm. Umber. Um, Brendan Blackfish says that his men call it the Red Messenger, but he doesn't know what it, what sort of message it's trying to deliver. Um, the Tollies in generally think it looks like a big fish. And then Brendan says that it's, it's a smear of blood across the sky to indicate warfare and the blood will be shed on both sides. It feels what it I think serves is that the world around you and signs and symbols don't have a fixed meaning uh. um, in any society, including here. And everyone sees in that mysterious, uh, otherworldly astronomical phenomenon what they want to see and uh, what they want to see always sort of circles back to themselves you know the, mm-hmm. the fact that the that the totally see a, a blackfish right it's of course it's <laughs> of course reflecting back on me what i what i, what I want to see yeah. and, you know and um and what i anticipate or what i want to happen so it, i think it's a fascinating way in which that the you know the comet serves as another metaphor for uh kind of both the way that prophecy works, but also the way that motivations are sort of driven and, and people interpret events through their own eyes and through their own desires. So I know that in the ancient worlds, great, you know, great doings in the heavens mm-hmm. were, you know, viewed as portents or they have some kind of political meaning usually, you know, the, you know, the herald, the, you know, the birth of a great person, we saw with you know Jesus and the, the star, or you know, I guess I I was also thinking of like Constantine and his vision of the the is it the cross or the risen Jesus? Um, I think it was the cross. I think, I yeah, I think he does see a, a cross. I'm wondering, does it do we do we have instances in the medieval period of people interpreting comets and you know supernova in that way? Oh, there's lots and lots of examples of that. Um, I think, you know, astrology was uh, absolutely sort of a, a you know, form of science, but also like Game of Thrones, right? Science mm-hmm. and religion are sort of intimately mixed um, and, and, and work to serve one another. Um, I think there's examples from Chaucer that we see in some of his, in some of the Canterbury Tales of using the stars and using the astrolabes to sort of um, interpret events. And oftentimes what we see in literature is the kind of making, the use of that, but also the making fun of that, the abuse of that particular system. (laughs) And, and, and perhaps what we see here is a version of that too, where, you know, immediately we have, uh, there's no sort of center of authority um, everyone kind of chimes in with their own reading of that, right. um, of, of the comet. What what the comet is, is a reminder, is sort of a mystery, and that's sort of the need of human nature to explain the unexplainable or something that like exists outside of yourself. That's essentially, I think, what was what sort of like hovering in the margins of this particular chapter, where, you know, kingship is directly linked to some kind of divine power. You need to have somebody outside yourself affirm that authority in one way is to bring a bunch of people together and to, to, to like kneel down. The other one is to uh, put on your outfit and your, uh, the accoutrements of, of authority of kingship. Right. And the final version is to have this sort of otherworldly um, validation of your authority. Yeah. It's funny. Like everyone, every, everyone views the, the other views as kind of ridiculous superstition, but they kind of have their own like, like sanitized version of superstition. Absolutely. 
that's one hundred. Either that's absolutely what's happening, and I think we're going to see that play out in later chapters as too as well. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Notable introductions in this chapter. Uh, Tywin's nephew, Kleos. Uh, Frey is introduced... And uh, even though he's a, a uh, he, you know, he's he's connected to the Lannisters because he's married Tywin's uh, sister's daughter. Um, he looks like a fray, and and Catton notes that. Uh, we have uh, you know mention of Carl Vance and Jonos Bracken and uh, Armory Lorch. So those are some interesting introductions. Interesting departures. I, I think that we should probably just assume that Cleos Frey is going to leave and bring terms to Cersei, uh, given what happens in future chapters. Uh, book departures, this entire chapter is is only a book thing. I mean, we see Rob in various roles as a young king. You know, we see characters being sent off, you know, as uh, envoys. But almost everything about this sh- this chapter, the Blackfish being involved, this is all kind of a book-only affair. Um, so I, I was interested to see how the show decided to kind of delete a bit of this in season two yeah. to kind of get to the action. Well, I mean, Rob shows up in the in the book with a full beard, and so <laughs> uh, not the book, but in the, in the film, in the TV series, right, and right. so I, I think they they age him a little bit, sort of bring him closer to Zenzi. Speaking of books, um, I want you to talk a little bit about your new book, The Benefits of Friends, which is now available. Tell me a bit about this book. Yeah, so this is a. On the surface, it will feel like a really strange departure from medieval literature. But when you really kind of like peel back the onion, you'll uh, you'll see that the extra has a lot of connections to it. But um, I, in addition to serving as a medieval professor for the past decade, I've also worked as a fraternity and sorority advisor on campus. And um, you know, fraternities and sororities have a lot in common with the Middle Ages. They're single-sex organizations, much like nunneries and monasteries That's that rely upon. Rit- that rely upon ritual um, and that uh, are sort of deeply based in the sense of, of, of community and sort of service communities away from communities. And so um, some of those insights get woven their way into there and in kind of direct or indirect form, but definitely inform my thinking about it. But yeah, so it just came out with UNC Press in September. I'm really excited about it. And I'm currently working on a, an essay for, um, a medieval journal that kind of explores more deeply the relations, the specific overlaps between medieval uh, literature and medieval culture and fraternities and sororities. And that should come out next year as well. Thank you so much, Jana. No problem. All right. I'll talk to you soon. And now throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. We finally see um, the fifth King. Uh, Renly. Yes. So we got Renly and, Renly's got problems because... <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> uh, you can kind of see that he's sort of a man of the people. People like him. 
Mm-hmm. He's got something that a lot of the other kings don't have, and yet he's having trouble making a baby, Steve. Yeah, yeah. One thing we know, he's not bi. He's that he's out. really repulsed by Marjorie. Yeah, totally. And um, I mean, and she's not great looking. I mean, if you think about it. Yeah, she's She's fine. no Joffrey, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. I do have a question about a clash of kings. Okay. And there's the question about hostages. Mm. Um, it's a really big deal in Martin's world that certain children are fostered in other houses. Mm. And that especially after some kind of conflict in order to keep the peace with maybe a house that you're not friendly with that you would take the hostage. In this case, we, we you know, we see Theon being uh, fosters at Winterfell because yeah. it's the oldest son mm. of Balon. Um, is there, was that a, was that a major practice? Was that a common practice? I mean, I think that, I think there's two elements to it. So the, the hostage element, yes, very much so is part and parcel of, you know, uh, medieval uh, uh, conflict resolution, um, or whether that's long term or short term, um, and in various different scenarios, uh, that you know, you will ask for or demand hostages, and these will be given as a sign of good faith, um, and to guarantee that both sides behave as they should. In a certain circumstance, and are these I mean, usually it, children? These hostages? Yeah, well, it, normally yes, because they have to be they have to be hostages of value. Um, mm. So I, either various examples of nobles uh, or, or their their children, or in, or indeed, if you really want to to pin somebody down, then yes, their own children or or extended family. So so yes, if if, if it's a lord who's been in rebellion, for example, he may well hand over his son or mm. or his sons or his nephews or whatever, because yes, there has to be a, a subtext there of if you misbehave again, I can do what I like to your son. Or, or to mm. your to your relative because mm. you have forfeited their their protection by misbehaving again and that does happen that there's um the Scottish uh, Earl of Orkney Harold Madison rebels against William the Lion um, and has to hand over his son as part of the deal that sees him come in uh, to the king's peace but his son Thorfinn is, is then kept a prisoner he's probably kept reasonably well but he remains a prisoner and he remains the king's to do with as he wishes as a means of making sure that Harold doesn't misbehave. But Harold rebels again. Uh, um, and in that circumstance, Thorfinn has his eyes put out and, and he's, I think, is he not castrated as well? Oh my gosh. Um, and he dies of his of his injuries. Now, actually, his death is probably not intended. Those types of punishments are, are intended to be non-lethal. Um, it's yeah. meant to be a punishment, not a death. Well, that um, was so going to be my next question. Did these Did this practice of sharing hostages actually served its purpose did it keep the peace and it sounds like it didn't always do that well no i think it depends on on the context in which it happens and and it depends on on the relationships that are that are looking to be fixed i mean i think if you're looking for a a way in which a conflict can be ended i would suggest that that hostages are less used as a kind of final element Mm. and and far more it's 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 a marriage alliance that's then sealed so if you look at for example peace being agreed between scotland and england in 1328 at the end of the the first war of independence um, there is that marriage between the two royal families uh, young David of Scotland, the, the heir to the Scottish throne, is married to Edward III's sister, uh, Joan of the Tower. And that is meant to cement the relationship between the two kingdoms and to, to ensure peace going right. forward because you've united the two families together in marriage so that they're actually then related to each other. Of course, right. it doesn't work that way. War restarts again four years later. Um, but but, but that, that's what's intended. Yeah. Right. And then uh, then my, my my other question would be, how long did this last? Like Theon is, <laughs> is kept, you know, until he's an adult. Did, did this ha- did this last forever, or uh, you know, what, what was the standard on this? I, I think I think hostages. Yeah, I mean, they, they should be kept for as long as the the terms of 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 whatever agreement has been made uh, are, are satisfied. So, um, the, the one example would be uh, David 
The second of Scotland is captured in battle, spends 11 years in English captivity, uh, and as part of the ransom negotiated for his release, has to hand over a bundle of, of Scottish noble prisoners that turns out is mostly, again, the sons of the Scottish nobility right. um, are handed over to serve. And they're there essentially as surety to make sure that he continues to pay his ransom. Right. So while that ransom is still outstanding, those prisoners remain in England. Um, and at least one of them uh, is still there, uh, I think about seven or eight years later, uh, when a, a bout of plague passes through England and he actually catches and dies from the plague while in, in English captivity, still as a, as a hostage for his king paying his ransom. Right. So, yeah, these, these things can last for a long time. Well, I think the complexity of the agreement for which they've been given in the first place can often dictate what that is. I mean, you, you'll also have hostages handed over for quite short-term transactions effectively uh, right. just to solve something in the here and now but once 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 it's been resolved then then the hostages are handed back or at least yeah. the hostages should be handed back so if you can capture some, like a knight on the battlefield like jamie's caught you know jamie's yeah. and kept alive you could easily turn around and trade that for someone maybe who's been in captivity for a, a very long time yeah, uh, you absolutely can, and that that does happen. That kind of exchange of prisoners. Uh, I mean, Robert, Robert the Bruce, Robert the First of Scotland does that in the aftermath of the Battle of Bannockburn. Has in his possession some very high-ranking English prisoners uh, as a result of the English defeat, uh, and so was able to exchange them for his wife, his daughter, his sister, mm. the Bishop of St Andrews. All these people that have been in English captivity for a number of years. Um, uh, was hmm. that eight years uh, at that point? So you know he, he's able to exchange them, but but I think also. Um, I mean, Jamie's perhaps a bit different just because of his value, uh, but but somebody maybe slightly further down the scale, what what they should have been able to do is go home to raise a ransom because you know you have to be able to access your money uh, or, or try and raise that money. But but in return, you would often hand over another member of your family as a hostage to make sure that you come back again, either with the money or, or to surrender yourself back into captivity huh. because you haven't raised it yet. Huh. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. What a weird world. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't I, I, say it's that weird. Someone just really recently tried to kidnap the um, the Speaker of the House. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> in my in yeah. my hometown of San Francisco. So, and uh, <laughs> another weird world. Um, yes, I, I always I always try and argue to my students that the medieval period is not all that different. We just perhaps perceive it that way. But. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to ask, uh, this whole idea of a king's guard, that there's a certain like higher status of knight that really is in the retinue of the king. Hmm. Is, that, is that just a, a full invention in Martin's mind or is there some kind of historical analog there? No, I mean, I think you, the king has his own household um, and the king has his own household knights and his own household foot soldiers as well. Um, so, you know, you do have those men who are, you know, the king is acting like any other lord in that sense, in that he has a retinue around him. But of course, there's advanced status uh, and that's granted only to a select few who then form that 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 household retinue for the for the king, for the crown. Um, so I, I think that there are there are parallels. Certainly, it's, they're not they're not um, around the king all the time. I would suggest, but yes, the king will provide them with cloaks uh, and with mm. you know uh, uh, gifts of clothing, which would signify them as being part of that of that retinue. Um, so I think that there are elements to it, and then oh. uh, there are later examples as well. You know, you do have the the guard the guard Eka says that that forms those Scottish tr troops that form. A guard around the French kings from the 15th century um, that that is instituted. They're they're mostly archers certainly, um, but they are they are created as a kind of specialist bodyguard almost oh, is that right? for the French crown. Yeah, oh. yeah, and that 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 continues as a as a ceremonial thing for for, for several centuries. Um, so, sure, yeah. I was thinking it was more of like a nod to sort of the King Arthur's court where you've got mm. the Knights of the Round Table or something. But I mean, I, I guess the question is maybe. Maybe that mythology emerges out of this idea that the king does have his own knights around him. 
Yeah, and, and, and medieval kings, or some medieval kings anyway, are, are deeply influenced by Arthurian legend. Um, you know, Edward III of England makes his own round table. You know, he, he crafts it. <laughs> right? I didn't yeah, know yeah. that. Right? Yeah, he has, he has this huge wooden, wooden round table, and, and, and some of them will, you know, they, they host tournaments where they act out various stories from Arthurian myth, where oh, they, they, they dress up and take on the personas of you know, of Galahad or Lancelot or whatever else, you know, they, they, they're cosplaying effectively. Um, and no, and so you had medieval really... cosplay in the medieval period. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, <laughs> some of them will see it as, you know, the kind of pinnacle of, of chivalry of, of, of their, how they see themselves right. and how it's the chivalric ideal, isn't it? It's that idealization of this is what we would like to be. Yes. And, and perhaps self-recognition of, we're not usually this way, or we're not often this mm -hmm. way, or, or indeed we're never going to be this. But but as with all things chivalric, I think there is always an ideal that the knights will try and achieve, even if they never get there. It's a little bit like uh, you know kids on the basketball court or kids on the uh, football pitch wearing the jerseys of their favorite celebrity, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. There's an yeah. ideal out there to live into that model of, mm. of you know the ideals sportsmen in this case i guess yeah and, and you know you can extend the sporting metaphor further I, again the tournament ha is almost always what well, certainly as it, as it develops in later years is almost always done before a crowd um yeah you know it, it's a popular sport stroke pastime uh famously depicted in a knight's tale with oh the yeah that's and, right and, yeah you know they, they are they are like a football crowd they're, they're doing chants and all they're the rest chanting but, you know the queens yeah, we will rock you or something yes exactly like uh, but i mean the, there are elements of that that, that are based in some sort of reality yes the, the the whole point of it was to show off in front of a crowd it was to to delight the crowd uh -huh. um that that was part and parcel of what the knights were trying to achieve they're trying to earn renown they're trying to become famous um and, and that's part and parcel of that Right. Okay, I have one last show question for you, and you're not prepared for this, so we'll see how you, how how well you do. You do like to put me on the spot. I do. I do like to do that. So we both enjoyed the show. Is there one scene that sticks with you? Is there one like if you're thinking back on the the season? Is there one standout moment where you just thought? that was really affecting or that was really compelling television. Um, that was really compelling storytelling. Is there one scene that sticks with you? God, uh, I'm not going to struggle to think of something, aren't I? I'll, uh, I'll tell you mine first. Okay, cool. All right. So we have Viserys who his, you know, he, he's kind of fashioned himself as this dreamer. He's not a mm -hmm. dragon rider very much anyway. Mm. And he's become, he's got this legacy as like the king of peace. And he's mm. a little bit disappointed in himself. Like he wishes maybe he had been tested so that he might have brought glory to his mm. reign. Mm. And he even says so much, you know, he's talking with Otto and saying, look, I always wondered what would ha what, what I would have been like if, if I had been born in a different time or if I had been tested in a certain way. And then the next episode, he's a really old guy, like really old. And he looks just like a walking corpse. Yeah, yeah. And he's got that scene where he like, no one's expecting him to walk into the throne room and he, the doors yeah. open and it's just that long, slow, and I think meant to be heroic walk to the throne. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's that bit about, you know, him, you know, telling Otto to stand aside and he, he, he drops the crown and his brother in a moment of brotherly love <laughs> puts the crown right on his head. I just thought that for me, that was the most remarkable scene of the first season. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the one that really got me anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, Paddy Considine was was excellent throughout. Yeah. I thought, but but Fantastic. yeah, that yeah that was a, a moment to know. I I think I I thought maybe the the clash um, after the kids have their fight and after uh, Eamon is maimed, loses his eye, uh -huh. uh, and that 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 fight 
yeah. within the family when <laughs> when Alison is is demanding retribution. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and essentially demanding her her nephew's eye. You gone too far. What have I done? But what was expected of me? Forever avoiding the kingdom, the family, the law. Will you pull out the old duty, please? Alison, let her go. Where is duty? Where is sacrifice? It's trampled under your pretty foot again. Release the blade, Alison. And now you take my son's eye. And to even that, you feel entitled. Exhausting, wasn't it? Hiding beneath the cloak of your own righteousness. But now they see you as you are. And, and it, it's all it's all the frustrations born out of 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 that friendship gone yeah. astray uh, but but also again of of Alison the mother protecting or trying to protect her her child and rant, venting about the fact that that no matter what she no matter what Renera does her, you know Alison's husband continues to defend her will yeah. always defend her and that is that is a frustration and of course it goes back to the succession as well and frustration about not knowing what happens next Otto already has told her you know if, if Rhaenyra comes to the throne your children will be dead yeah. you know so all of that is playing at the back of her mind but but yeah it's just I suppose Rhaenyra's comment that you know that this is the truth of you I always knew was there kind of thing you you finally revealed it to everybody else, mm-hmm. and she means that in a in a negative way. But then, our, you know, Otto says to her afterwards that you know he's actually quite pleased at that that he actually sees in her the the, the aggression. The yeah, he's gre- proud of her for the for very first time. For the very first time, yeah, because he, he <laughs> now that, that I've seen that you're a, to play the uh, game, <laughs> you you can be a political animal out there, yeah, right? ju- just like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because he, he he said before, hasn't he, that that sometimes. She reminds her. She reminds him of her mother, but you yeah. don't necessarily think that as a positive. Um, perhaps that's the yeah, point at which he really finally sees himself. You don't know how he feels about his wife, do you? No, no, he's he's not. He doesn't give much away, Otto, does he? But um, but that yeah, that's the point at which he perhaps sees her, sees himself in her, and knows then perhaps that she's fit for what's to come. Uh huh. Thanks, Ian. I I appreciate your time. No worries. Thank you very much. <laughs>